You are tuned to the Martially Speaking Podcast with your host, Jeff Green, a practitioner of Wing Chun Kung Fu, Savat, and JKD. Now, here's your host, Jeff Green. Hey, you guys. Thank you for joining me again with Martially Speaking with JG. I'm Jeff Green, your host. And I have my first international guest today from Calgary, Canada, Sifu J. Cooper, who is a uh, grappler, uh, also black belt in karate, and uh, runs Havoc JKD in Calgary, Canada, and uh, also spent some time in law enforcement. So he'll be able to tell us how he was able to actually use the uh, defense techniques that he learned, merge them into his law enforcement, and talk to us about his growing online uh, training program, which is called Havoc. So without any further ado, from Calgary, Canada, my man and my big brother, Sifu J. Cooper. Hello, how are you, sir? I'm good, my friend. How you doing? I'm doing great. Sifu J. Cooper joining me today on Marchly Speaking. I really appreciate you carving some time out of your busy schedule to talk to us today. That's not a problem, my friend. Thank and you for having me on the show. It's a pleasure. You coming to me from uh, Calgary, uh, Canada, by way of Alabama, huh? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. As you noticed by the accents, Tom, I ain't from around these hip hops. So, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so how, how was your week? You know what? It's been a very, very good week so far. Um, I've um, always busy, as I'm sure you're aware that even if you're tangentially involved in the martial arts industry, you're always mental. Um, when it's your job and your profession, doubly so. <laughs> but uh, no, it's been positive. I've done some Absolutely. seminars with a diverse group of people. I did a class, uh, a self-defense lecture for seniors. Um, okay. taught my my regular classes at school. I've actually just finished... Uh, I just got back in from teaching a bare knuckle boxing seminar that I do on a weekly basis as well. So it's fun. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's that's becoming more popular now. Well, the interesting thing is I actually teach it in the uh, the 19th century style. So I don't see most okay. modern bare knuckle boxing isn't. It's boxing without gloves oh. on, which is I mean, good at all. Don't get me wrong. I actually love to watch it. And um, uh, Alan Belcher, who's a business coach of mine, is actually doing very well in it at the moment and UFC veteran. But it's still the modern style of punching, which was born out of the gloves, just done without the gloves on. Now, when you actually trace it back to the original systems, um, there's a lot of um, stylistic similarities between many of the stuffs we're more familiar with seeing in karate or in Wing Chun or some of the perceived more esoteric systems. So there's some fascinating insights to be gleaned by revisiting the history of any um, society and its martial disciplines because... As Bruce Lee himself once said, we've got two arms, two legs. There's only so many ways you can move the body. So you find the differences often outweigh the – sorry, the similarities often outweigh the differences. Right. So what is the big uh, – where did those uh, – the bare knuckle, bare knuckle boxing that you're speaking of, where did they originate? Um, it, well, it, obviously, it, it was around the globe. Um, but primarily, um, okay. the style I'm teaching is, uh, is the English system. Um, I got okay. into it many, many years ago, uh, mainly from a historic perspective, actually. There was a wonderful book um, that was um, my brother, who was a, a big boxing historian, um, found a bare knuckle boxing book, which had all these pictures okay. and all these descriptions of these old fights that we used that used to go on. So then um, I started researching and gone further into it. And if once you start to scratch the surface, because effectively it was a lost art for a time. Um, because the glove game came in and that changed the uh, the nature of the of, of the business, but there's still a lot of books out there. Like you know, there's books by a gentleman called uh, Colonel um, Monstery, who did you know a book called Self Defense for Gentlemen and Ladies. There's the manuals available by the old champions, you know Daniel Mendoza, Richard Humphreys. Um, there's just all these wonderful old fallen from favor historic texts which once you actually get into them, you can reconstruct some stuff, which is quite spectacular. Um, coming from the UK as well, we have a, a big traveler community in Bare Knuckle. We're still very much part of their culture when it was alive. And in my professional encounters with them, I got the chance to exchange and talk to some of the more experienced fighters in that community too. So it's been something that you piecemeal together over the years to reconstruct how it was. Now, 
Okay. Trying to find footage of it, of course you can't. There's some scant examples of very early uh, 20th century boxing out there, including some of John L. Sullivan, who's the last of the bare knuckle champions. But you can kind of fill in some of the blanks when you watch uh, um, a gentleman like the great uh, Jack Johnson, the Galveston Giant. Um, when you watch him fight, although he's fighting in a gloved style, the fingerprints of the bare knuckle game are still there, and his movement, his setups, and things. So okay. with an educated eye, you can actually reconstruct with a reasonable degree of accuracy and care what went on back in the day. Awesome, man. That's, that's crazy. Yeah, I have seen um, PBS had a pretty extensive uh, special on Jack Johnson. Mm. So I did watch that. And I remember seeing John L. Sullivan, the guy with the handlebar. Yes. Mustache, right? Yeah. yeah. I think he's probably the, probably the person people think of most when they think about bare, bare knuckle boxing. Well, he was a superstar. But UK has like, great boxing fans too. I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I was going to say because Sullivan is like you know the the last of the uh, the bare knuckle champions. So uh, um, he he's the one that's probably most remembered. And also, he was kind of like you know the Hulk Hogan of his day or the Ali of his day. He was like this big, huge name, and everyone knew him. The Boston Strong Boy, etc., etc., etc. So he was the the last of the bare knuckle champions and the first of the glove, which was um, why his place in history will forever be cemented. Um, so it's the, yeah. Do you have a favorite boxer? You guys are great fans over in the UK. It's funny. I was, I just rewatched the Mike, the uh, Nigel Ben, and um, Joe McClellan. Gosh, a, uh, Gerald McClellan. Gerald McClellan. Yeah, I just watched rewatched that yesterday. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know what? Wow, I mean, what a, fight. What, what a fight. fight! what a tragic fight in its outcome. Although we obviously you didn't know it's that at tragic. the time. It really was. I mean, had that been anywhere but the UK, that fight would have been stopped inside three rounds because um, Ben was just getting smashed all over the place. Ben would have you know? lost. Ben would have lost. Yeah, lost absolutely. Because... But he sort of like, you know, they keep giving him a chances. He dug deep and, and he came back and just overwhelmed. See, McClellan as a boxer was a phenomenal fighter with, with punching power like you wouldn't believe and, and a big old chin on him too. And unfortunately, he was so powerful in his punching, he neglected the defense part and just was eating shots because he thought he could just, you know, one shot everybody. And, you know, like all boxers, a point where you have to engage a plan when plan A doesn't work, you have to have a plan B to kick in, you know, um, power budgets are probably the ones that are most likely to not have a plan B. And yes. I noticed that right off that he kept getting clipped. I was like, man, he's hurting this guy. Mm-hmm. Ben keeps clipping him because he doesn't, Zero head movement, but when you're getting 28 guys out of there in the first two rounds, you know, you start, well, you know. We've seen the same thing with Deontay recently as well, you know. I mean, yeah, the, the, the guy will probably blow, you know, 90% of the heavyweight division out of the water with, you know, his punch. Unfortunately, Tyson Fury is just the guy that he won't be able to beat because that style doesn't work as well with him. Yeah, so Everybody has your number, right? Exactly. You know, rock, paper, scissors. There's no such thing as one beat soul. <laughs> Well, I mean, you, you actually asked who my favorite boxer was. Do you mean in general, or do you mean UK? Yeah, yeah in general, if it, it's, it can be UK, because actually one of my, in my top 12, Carl Proch is one of my favorite. I liked him. I really uh, liked yeah, yeah, Carl yeah. Proch. I, not. I, thought he was, I thought he was a dog. <laughs> oh, if you look, I mean, my favorite of all time, probably um, Evander Holyfield. Um, oh wow! Lo- really love me some of Anna Holyfield. I mean, the guy, such an underrated boxer as well. His his technique was was off the charts good. Um, heart of a lion and just an awesome, awesome guy. Um, my favorite British fighter, probably Ricky Hatton. Okay. Um, awesome. Home, yeah, he was, he hometown was a boy, at like one thirty. Mm-hmm. He was a hometown boy of man of mine as well. He actually comes from Hyde near me, so uh, that, that's my hometown. Oh, is that right? Yep, yep, yep. So you used yeah. to see him jogging in the he's village. Blown up, he's blown up a little bit. But, uh, yeah, you know. Yeah, the he, guy was a monster at 130, 135. He was a monster. He really was. Um, and then if you're asking me for my, who I think's the the GOAT, pound for pound GOAT, um, uh-huh. tricky one because obviously it, it, there's so many things that can go in there. I'll probably go for Joe Lewis. Um, the simple fact why? being, why? It, the principle being, if you look at how boxing evolved and how it changed, he was the first guy to me that looked like the modern boxer. Okay. So he was that cusp from, you know, the brawlers and the swingers to the modern games. He was a real first of that. The man had a killer instinct as well. Um, he was very precise, very considered, very technical. 
and he could just he wasn't necessarily spectacular in terms of the way he fought but he was so fundamentally sound in the way he fought and he would like he would pace you he would stalk you he would stalk you and then when he got you he had finishing instincts like no one else I've ever seen um, so yeah I'd, I'd go with Joe for that but I mean again it, it it's subjective because you could also then throw in you know um, uh, a Sugar Ray Robinson um, you can throw in then there's the, of the, the four the Haglids the Lenners and the things like that as well so it, it depends on, off the time it depends on what day you ask me or how many pints I've had um, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know? Well, that's what so I'd say Hagler um, I love Pernell Whitaker Oh, sweet pea. Yes, I, yes, yes. I love Ali. Um, those are probably, and, and Holyfield too, because Holyfield was a very underrated combination puncher. His combinations were beautiful. Yes, he really was. Absolutely does. gorgeous. Oh, my really God. Well, it, Canelo does the same thing. I love the way they create their openings because yep. a lot of times it's not the first two punches that they're trying to get, it's the last two. <laughs> yes. Well, and then not always. Your hands to where they want them to be, and then they. they go and attack you in the in the area that you just vacate <laughs> but the, the thing is this is the beauty of boxing as an art form and as a martial as a martial art in general um you you can take um so who's the best puncher who's the best defensive fighter who's got the best footwork who's got the best jab who's got the best you know whatever it happens to be and the names that often get neglected are the, or, or even just passed over I me mean, you look at a guy like winky Wright. he's another guy who's you know i used to love oh, yeah. what winky was just the master in the ring but you know he wasn't yeah. Big personality or anything like that. You talk about jabs and things, and people throw out the Larry Holmeses and the Ali's and stuff. But then you forget. You look at a guy like Liston; he would take your head off with his jab. I mean, the, yes, the history of the game is so rich and diverse, and that's why when I say I'm not trying to be, you know, political, when people say, "What's your favorite fight?" when I kind of hedge my bets on it. It's like it literally depends what day you ask me, because of what I'm in, what I'm in the mood for, or what I've been watching, or what I've been studying. There's, you know, uh, it's what amazing. You've been drinking. That too. If I've had the Guinness, then I'll probably still talk about the Guinness, you know. Just... <laughs> uh, tell, me, tell me about your upbringing. Well, I mean, everyone always, when you talk about upbringings, you know, I, I had what I describe as an incredibly loving, comfortable, happy upbringing. You know, there was no major traumas or anything in my life at all. My my mum and dad, Paul and Janet, they were absolutely amazing people. Um, we didn't have a lot of money, but we weren't exactly poor either. We were perfectly comfortable slap bang in, in the middle of the middle class. Um, but um, as I was growing up, you, you, you develop the interesting things that kids always develop interest in, you know, the Ninja Turtles, uh, karate games on video games, you know, all the good stuff from that. Um, and then for me, um, the only thing that really was was the turning point in the road for me was really outside of a few elderly relatives dying. The first major trauma was when I, I got jumped off three three kids, um, same age as me. Just decided they were going to whip the shit out of me one day. Oh, sorry, can I? Stop? How, how old were you? How old were you? Are you curse? I was four, I was fourteen. Okay. I was fourteen. So, like I said, I'd had a relatively easy, you know, span of things up until that point. Fourteen years old. Um, three lads jumped me and again wasn't like a massive beat down or anything I just got punched in the head and a few boots in um, that was about it and, but that was you know a turning point for me and that was when I decided I didn't want to you know be picked on didn't want to be bullied and like so many other people I found my way to the martial arts through that that was what got me in and here I am 35 years later still doing it yeah and you started off with karate right Shukakai karate, to be precise. Yeah, there was a wonderful. Dojo. I was, I was blessed because back then, you, I mean, you didn't know there was no MMA, there was no real mainstream on the martial arts. It was still, uh -huh. it was Bruce Lee, and maybe you'd see a judo chop in a James Bond film. That was about it. Um, right. You know, so there was no real mainstream um, martial arts exposure like there is these days. So, I just went for whatever was near 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 to me. And there happened to yeah. be a karate club nearby. It's the, uh, they're now called Dentokai Karate, uh, but they were called Shorai Karate at the time. And the sensei was a, a gentleman called Lee Kofi. Um, still active, still teaching, and I still actually recommend anyone that's, that can get a chance to go and train with him to do so. Phenomenal traditional karateka too, like real big into basics and proper technique, proper generation. And he took that stuff really, really seriously. So he gave me not only a wonderful education in martial arts, he gave me a great filter moving forward with which to assess other disciplines and other people I was training under. So I, I had a, a really good standard out the gate. 
and um, everything moving forward since then has been judged against that initial standard. Okay, so um, let me ask you this: like kung fu, karate has a lot of different styles. So, what's the distinction as opposed to Shotokan and some of the other karate styles? How if you look. Shukai literally translates way for all, if memory serves. I mean, it's been a while since I, I, I've done a lot of the karate stuff. I, I still teach it at the dojo when I'm helping with the, the techniques and things, but I don't practice it in, in, in that way. It's not my, you know, my heart or my style. Right, right. Um, but there was a gentleman called Shigeru Komura, um, not the same Komura that you got in, in judo, um, but Shigeru Komura. He was a, a developed a technique called the double hip. So the idea was a lot of the the more traditional karate was a lot lower and you know quite strong and solid and hefty and some you know you think of the Shotokan fighters like the Anidas and the guys back in the day and in the UK we had a guy called Terry O'Neill who was always a legend just big powerful dudes well it's not that Kimura wasn't you know powerful but he was much more upright and he was applying a lot of kind of sports science and physical analysis to the art and the discipline so if you think about the way a lot of people teach a punch and you think of a karate punch and you picture it, you picture like, you know, the big hip going and the hip and the hand moving together and, and putting all your power behind it. Well, Kimura's principle on that was no other discipline in a sporting endeavor teaches you to hit that way. So if you're going to hit a baseball, you don't keep your bat and your hip hinged together. You separate them. So the last thing that actually travels is the bat. So the hip goes and everything swings through and then the, centrifugal force builds up and then the very very last thing that swings is the hand when you know that the it hits the ball so he started mm -hmm. applying this same principle to the, the the power generation in shukakai um i still actually teach it to this day slightly modified for my my, my current styles and things like that as well but it was a massive eye-opener because it's like wow not only are you hitting you're hitting incredibly hard with this too as well um and I was fortunate latterly to train um, under Peter Constantine in the UK, who's, uh, I think he's a ninth degree black belt now in Shukakai, um, who just hits like an absolute anvil. Um, and I was a member of the British Combat Association under him. So that further helped me develop, uh, um, you know, my, my hitting and stuff. But it was also through Peter and his partner at the time, Jeff Thompson, and the British Combat Association that I got my exposure to the self-defense side of the fence as opposed to the martial arts side of the fence. And that was a big turning point for me as well. Yeah, I'm going to come back to that in a few sure. minutes. Um, actually, um, we're thinking along the same lines on that. So um, you also are ranked in catch wrestling. What is catch wrestling? I see it a lot, <laughs> name, but I don't know what it is. There, there are a million ways I can describe it. The, if I'm feeling facetious, I always say if professional wrestling was real. That's catch wrestling. Um, <laughs> which is actually only half joking. Um, wrestling as it was back in the day, um, you had obviously guys like Farm Burns, Frank Gotch, uh, Hackenschmidt, um, Strangler Lewis and all those guys. They used to wrestle competitively. So it was submission wrestling. Um, akin to no-gi jiu-jitsu, if you like, but with pins. Um, and they would actually, if memory serves, it was Lewis and Stetcher had a match which lasted three hours. And the crowd was like, you know, bored wow. the tits. It, I mean, it's just going to be dull. A technical masterpiece, just dull. So they realized that, you know, most of the crowd probably don't know exactly what they're looking at here. So they can fake it a little bit, make it a little bit more exciting, predetermine the outcome, just put on a show. So, you know, of course, over the years, that then became the show business style. And then, you know, you enter the 60s or 70s and the Hulk Hogan's and all the, all the good stuff that came from there. Um, so catch wrestling, as it stands now, is being very much rediscovered and put to the forefront. Now, I've been very, very fortunate to have uh, the honor of training under Harry Smith who's uh, the British Bulldog's son. Um, but he's ranked under Billy Robinson. He's trained with Sakuraba. He's trained with Fujiwara. He's trained with, you know, probably more catch wrestlers than anyone else alive. And he's an absolute monster of a human being as well. I mean, he's like, you know, 6'5 and about 280 with about 2% body fat. So he's just like an absolute horse of a human wow. being. Um, but he's also like, you know, accomplished Naga grappling champion. He's been sparring partners and trained with Josh Barnett frequently. And, you know, he's, uh, he, he's really, you know, top of the food chain. Here. So I've been blessed to have been trained with him. Um, and he gave me a lot of exposure to catch wrestling. So 
through my experience training with him, through obviously, you know, the reference material, the video libraries and all the stuff that's out there, I've been working on folding that into the jujitsu that I've already done. And um, catch wrestling really catches the imagination. So it's um, it's a very intricate, sophisticated grappling art. It's very popular at the moment. However, its popularity isn't necessarily reflected in the standard of the practitioners. A lot of the people are armchair fans. Say, so, oh, catch wrestling's got all that in it. And it's like, yeah, okay, when was the last time you wrestled? Well, you know, I haven't done it. Okay, yeah, fine. So your opinion's literally worth what I paid for it. Um, so <laughs> and it, it, it becomes the art du jour. You know, you get the same thing with guys that, you know, they hear of an art or they read of an art and they say, well, if you really want X, the X being striking, self-defense, grappling, weapons, whatever it is, then you need this art. Half the time, it's just an art they've heard of. Most of the guys right. that are at any level, most of the guys at any level with any real discipline uh, or any real ability will say, "This is what I teach. I like this." However, there's lots of good stuff out there as well, and they'll, you know, sort of entertain the fact that most arts have something to offer. Absolutely, I subscribe to that, and that's why this is an open tent uh, podcast. I don't mm-hmm. limit it to any style. Um, I'm a JKD Wing Chun Savat guy. I've dabbled in other stuff. But I appreciate all the martial arts. I think we have a commonality. We should be under a large tent. Um, this is an attempt to bring everybody together instead of us, mm-hmm. you know, doing what we typically do, going to our tribalism and protect our art. And this is the best and that's the best. Subscribe to that. Um, I think it depends on the system. It depends on the person. Um, it's, it's black, it's absolutely people true. that have black belt they can't fight. <laughs> so, that is an interesting point that you bring up though because the black belt used to be seen as a measure of your ability as a fighter all it really is is it's your ability of your um technical mastery of any given system um it, there's no exactly. requirement to actually be able to fight within that what's fascinating is if you look at some of the you know the the, the fighters over the years like a uh, fuki young for example who's one of bruce lee's teachers uh, a guy that not many people mm-hmm. have actually heard of. Um, he used to say, all same. All same was one of his, his famous quotes. Um, his principle being that when you actually get down dirty with it, most arts are basically the same sort of deal. They're all pretty much identical. It's just the nuances and some of the sauces and pickles. So right. if you look at, I don't know, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, sambo wrestling, and I'll throw catch wrestling in there because it's my chosen art, there's far far more similarities than there are differences um if you look at boxing wing chun even karate to an extent yeah the guard position changes some of the you know target areas change but you can find common principles throughout the whole thing oh, absolutely um, i have uh, seen floyd mayweather use a line style many yes times, yeah 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 he doesn't call um, it that and it's very no, he, but he boards off people with that. You see him shoulder roll a lot of times. He's in the corner, and he has that line out up in their neck where they can't get through it. And then you'll mm-hmm. actually see him punch over. I'm like, that's wings. <laughs> it, it is, you know. Um, th- this is it's a little bit like the old story, the blind man and the elephant. You know, everyone alone perceive truth through their own particular um, perception of it. Like, you know, one grabs a hold of the elephant's leg, one grabs a tail, one grabs a trunk. So the one that's got the leg says, ah, the elephant is, you know, it's just like a, a tree. And the tail says, no, no, the elephant's a rope. And when he's got a trunk, you're all fools. The elephant's really like a snake. Well, you've got a partial piece of the truth, but you're missing the totality mm-hmm. of the circumstances. You, I mean, there's some great footage out there of um, Roberto Duran doing basically mm-hmm. chisa. Uh, it's a form of chisa. Oh, yeah, he's, he's actually in his 60s, uh, maybe in his 70s, and he's actually showing some young guys, and he's basically doing sticky hands. And if you watch Duran, you know, he used to do a little kind of sticky handy thing when he was boxing and things like that as well. Um, Ali was wrestling and, and, and doing the finger threading when he used to tie you up in the clinches and things. Um, uh-huh. Now, was it, was it recognized as such? No, of course it's not, and he's not grappling in the strictest sense of the word. But if you look at the essence right. of what he was doing, it's basically the same thing. Um, the, the the trick is I not totally letting, agree. but the trick is not letting the idea of all things are basically the same blind you to shortcomings in any training protocols that you have. So for me, I always say to my guys: if you train under pressure, you'll fight under pressure. If you don't train under pressure, you'll never perform. 
And that's, I think, the missing ingredient. That's why when you look at the arts that consistently produce the people that are said to be the best fighters, the boxers, the kickboxers, the MMA guys, the jiu-jitsu guys, whatever it happens to be, the only true common ingredient is the manner in which they train. And it's under consistent pressure against resisting opposition. The arts that supposedly do the self-defense side of the stuff so deadly and all the street urban and the, the, the often thrown out completely nonsensical statement of well i train for the streets where there are no rules it's like okay dude if you can't fight me with rules you ain't fighting me without my but you know you, you don't get magic because if i can fight in rules i can break those rules if you can't fight in rules you have no rules to break you're going to get smashed because it's fundamentals that deliver your ability for, for inflicting punishment upon another person it's nothing to do with what you want to do um so that's always been a bit of a bugbear of mine. So where does JKD fall into that? Then? Depends which school you go in to. In terms of, yeah. So the schools I've gone to, have been, I know we've done heavy sparring, we believe in. Mm -hmm. um, because that's an opportunity to test what you've learned under pressure, under somebody who's resistant. Because mm -hmm. different levels, you'll, you'll, you'll do it against somebody who's a little newer, somebody who's on your level, and then you get lucky. And this senior starts, okay, who wants to go with me? You know, and I'm like, I, I've always the guy who I wanted to go with the singer. I knew I was going to lose, but I was going to get better. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's I like that. You learn, how, right, how are you going to beat me? That's, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, I think, so, how do you how do you think JKD trains in terms of um, getting people prepared for the real deal, or the way, uh, at least the way you do it? And by the uh, way I do it, I mean. Your I'm slightly anomalous even by JKD terms, but my association and one I'm in is on the Sifuhur in the Singh Sabawal. So we've got guys in there like uh, Derek Sierra, who's a you know, federal marshal, uh, former heavyweight boxer, and an Aga champ. We've got um, kickboxers, wrestlers, John Clark, for example, uh, another very good friend of mine, Dee Burton, who's a police officer who's got hands, you know, that fire like machine guns. Um, we get instructors in like Marcel Luzardo, six time Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu world champion, uh, Professor James Hunden, personal superhero of mine. He's a small circle guy under Wally J. So we expose ourselves to all these guys that, you know, mm. with the best one in the world will knock the stuffing out of you. So they knock you right, down, sure. they you down and they hold you down. Sure. But you learn how sure. they do it and they help you get better at doing sure. that. Um, so sure. I can't speak for what other JKD schools do. Um, but with my guys, I follow a very similar protocol, um, great gradiated exposure. But the one thing I'm big on from the, the lowliest drill, from the very beginning drill, right the way through to when we're sparring at the end. And sparring is just an advanced drill. It's not the real thing. It's a drill. Mm -hmm. It's just a, a much more no. free flowing sure. drill. Um, I always say, as long as you're going to make contact with what you're throwing, you're good. It doesn't have to be hard contact. It can be 1% contact, but there has to be a consequence mm -hmm. to failure. If I throw a jab at you and you're going to practice slipping it, even if I'm thrown out at 1% power, if you miss, it bounces off your head, you know you didn't get out of the way. If I fire it and you slip out of the way, mm -hmm. you know you got out of the way of it. You get a risk to reward, you know, mm -hmm. and you get proper exposure. What I also do with my guys is I give them scenario-based training. And this is what a lot of clubs, um, there's a couple of guys that I, I'm very good friends with, the guys like John Titchen in the UK and myself. Outside of that, not many others do scenario training, which is someone okay. fronting you, shouting at you, you know, distracting you, trying to rob you, or you'll say, right, you're an ATM, take your money out and fall, let the situation unfold as it goes. Because self-defense is, you know, as an endeavor, 90% non-physical. How do you the mean 10%. It, well, you think about it. If if I just say something like, you know, don't go down a dark alleyway at three o'clock in the morning, don't go into, you know, a biker bar or, you know, in, in your hip hop gear, um, don't go stupid places and do stupid things. That appears right. to be self evident and common sense. But many people, when it comes to those self defense situations, do not always exercise the best of judgments. They sure. don't look both ways for the crossing the road. They say stupid things when they've had more beer than they should have done. And a lot of the situations are potentially avoidable. Now, of course, not all of them are. Hence, you need to have a physical system in place to be able to back you up on that. But if you can actually address a lot of the scenarios, like how many, how many times do you talk to someone in a training drill and then try and hit them with a punch when they're answering you back? 
Never. Most people don't. I teach my guys that all the time because that's how you're going to knock someone out cold on the cobbles. You talk to them uh-huh. when they're distracted or when they're going to answer your back, throw your shot. Uh-huh. And it's little ambush shots like this as well. Again, it's the difference between you know mutual combat or dueling, which is what most schools um, do in their sure. teaching and training for self-defense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. Uh, you have a program called Havoc, mm-hmm. and it's an online. That, it's an online course. It looks like. Where did you get the name Havoc? Uh, or is it or is it online, and do you teach it um, at the school as well? So I don't want to. I teach you at the school as well. Havoc, Havoc is my reading um, of all the arts I've done over the years. So, true story. Mm-hmm. When I was in, in the police and I'd been doing, doing martial arts for all this time, I've trained JKD, I've done the Crydon Jiu-Jitsu, done all the good stuff. And this is before I'd attained formal ranking in JKD. So I was teaching a lot of stuff. Like, you know, I was teaching a rat, for example, like from, from PFS, and I was, you know, using that effectively. But I hadn't been graded in it. I had no rank in it. So I'm not one of those guys okay. that's going to say, well, I teach JKD that I've developed on my own. It's like, well, no, if I'm not ranked in it, I don't teach it. I mean, I can steal techniques from it, sure. So what I came, what I wanted to come up with was a snappy name. This is honestly, this is truth. It's going to sound stupid, but I wanted a snappy name that was an acronym that worked well. Um, and so, okay. you know, you, you start you start with all the, you know, the macho wings, you know, I don't know, war fighting or, you know, ninja, death, kill, squad, whatever the hell. I came up with Havoc. Uh-huh. Um, as hostile, aggressive, violent offender combatives. Okay. Awesome. Um, because those are the three types of people you're going to encounter, a hostile person, an aggressive person, or a violent person. Uh-huh. If you're not dealing with one of those three people, you're having a chat, and you, you don't need to worry about it. And then an offender, right. because they're the ones at fault, not you, and combatives, obviously, you covered the combatives. So Havoc just became a snappy name. Um, so okay. what do you teach? Oh, I teach Havoc. Was that oh, yeah, hostile, aggressive, violent, offending combatants? Okay, fine. So it wasn't an art in and of itself. It was just the name I called what I was teaching as a convenient, marketable okay. method of doing it. Anyway, then obviously got into the JKD properly and started doing all you know that sort of stuff because I was young and stupid when I coined the name mm. Havoc. The way you know this isn't like I wasn't in my mid thirties or forties. Um, and then as I started teaching, gaining the proper qualifications and, and all that sort of stuff too, Havoc just became the name of the school. Okay. So it became Havoc JKD was the school. My reading of JKD under the hostile, aggressive, violent, offender, combatives banner, because that was my experience. That was my paradigm. That was what I'd learned. So that was what I was taught. And okay. then it just kind of stuck from there. Now, Havoc University... Uh, the Genesis was originally as part of my instructor program. I was teaching okay. the, the the my instructors here, and we were doing uh, weekend sessions for their qualifications because the four instructor ranks under me. So we'd get together on a weekend, and it'd be two 10-hour days, and then two days became three days. Then it ended up becoming four days. Then it ended up being split out over you know five days over two or three weeks. I was like, this is ridiculous. Because we were just literally skimming the surface of it just to get it in. Oh, they were training with me throughout the year. It's like, right, you can cram it all in, cram it all in, cram it all in. So one year, I decided to stretch the instructor training out literally over the course of a year. So every week, we did okay. an hour's training, an hour's instructor training. And at the end of the year, we did the mm-hmm. final physical test and exam. So it was 52 hours of training under me, in addition to anything you were doing in class as well. This is just purely isolated instructor training. 52 hours of that, yes, sir. and then you tested at the end, and it, it seemed to work better. Okay. That then gave me the idea, because one of my guys was in um, BC, one of them was in the UK, and they were responding really, really well to the teaching. So I was like, well, the world's moving online. Why don't I look at exploring this as making this more of an immersive program? Mm-hmm. So then I came up with Habit University, which is an online training program, two lessons right. a week, one a physical right one uh, theory on the legal, ethical, and moral underpinnings of, uh, of combat and things. And there's exercises in there and archive footage and things as well. But you do two hours a week over the course of the year in five modules, being self-defense, fundamentals, advanced weapons, and grappling. And okay. the idea is at the end of that year, you trained to a level within the habit system. If you wish to test for an instructor rank at the end of it, you can do so. And then you move on to year two, which you build on what you did in year one. Then you move on to year three, which you build on what you did in year two. So 
you repeat the year along with everyone, but you're building what you already know when there are, you know, inter beginning, intermediate and advanced options for each of the things that we do. And by the end of it, you're doing a three-year immersive course and you'll be qualified to uh, hopefully instruct um, your own classes if you wish to do so. So cool. a lot of the guys, and these days especially people say you can't learn from online. They're not necessarily wrong. Um, you can't learn from online just watching videos. But everyone that says that, if you look on their bookshelves, on, on their shelves, uh, they've got like, you know, 300 videos, 1,000 books. And so, although if you can't learn from it, why have you got all these books? Why have you got all these videos? If I turn around in my chair right now and look at my shelves, like my entire wall is taken up by martial arts books and videos. Um, it's just, it, it, which is great. We do that. We have reference points. We take notes in class to cement the information that we have. So with video learning and remote learning, you think about most instruction, certainly the way it was done back in the day. The instructor would stand at the front of the room, or more frequently one of the senior students would, demonstrate the moves, and then you repeat it for an hour. Well, I don't see how that's really any different than me being on the other end of a camera watching you do a move and then telling you what to do to correct that move. Granted, there's a certain tactile sensitivity I have that's missing. But I've been in the game 35 years now. If I can't tell you what you're doing wrong and get you to feel it just by words alone, then there'll probably be something very wrong with how I'm teaching. So that was how it okay. moved to the online training thing. So that's been, we're just literally finishing module five of year one now. And that's been going very, very well. We've got 13 people doing it with me. And I think they're going to be re-signing up again for next year. So it's been good. So uh, I, was, I actually did watch your video uh, on that. So, but I was curious, you had a self-defense portion and a grappling portion mm -hmm. uh what's you didn't mention things you've learned through all the martial arts you've done or is this jkd specific or it's um, i try to keep it relatively style free okay and instead address core concepts and principles instead okay. at its simplest level yeah it's jkd with a bit of wrestling a bit of serata a screamer some jujitsu some wing you know some wing chun some um, karate and and blah 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 blah, but it becomes a little like. Um, have you ever heard the story of Stone Soup? No, sir. It's an old folk tale from um, from Europe. So a gentleman um, uh, asks uh, for uh, a pot of boiling water so he can make some stone soup, and mm -hmm. uh, knocks on the door of the castle, and then he puts the stone soup in the pot, boils it away and goes, oh, I smell that's delicious. This is going to make me a great soup. And he says to the cook, could you spare me a little bit of salt, please, just to season it? And the cook goes, yeah, no problem. Put some salt in it. And he's like, oh, you know, that's perfect. That's perfect. That's perfect. A little, you know what really, really offset this? A, a little bit of a uh, little bit of stock. Oh, okay, yeah, so What's put that? some stock in it as well. And then what you had, then you had some pepper, some onions, some chicken, some carrots, some right, whatever. And he said, I remember this is all from a stone. This is just a stone soup. And before you know it, the stone is no longer the ingredient. Everything else has made it, but you have to start with the stone for everything else to come in. Um, and so I sometimes yeah. say there's a danger of your martial art. If you stick with the stone, that's fine. But you end up becoming the stone soup. So although I've still got all the stuff I've done in there, it's more a distillation yeah. of the common principles between all the arts I've done. Um, so sometimes it'll look like boxing, sometimes it'll look like JKD, sometimes it'll look like wrestling, sometimes it'll look like Serata. But I'll try and draw those things together to explain the principle rather than get focused on this is this style, this is that technique. It's more a commonality of purpose. Mm -hmm. And again, that's the other thing as well. Not everybody's going to fight the same. I mean, hell, we've been talking right. about boxing earlier. You take any five boxers. They all use the same ingredients, jab, cross, hook, uppercut, overhand, bob, weave, duck, slip, whatever. Not one of them fights the same. And that's with the exactly. arguably the simplest ingredient list in the martial arts world. So when you, you always have two it, hands. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, but, yeah, but you can put elbows and legs in there. Yeah. But then you start looking at music as well. I mean, you know, you pick a, a genre in particular. Like, I, you, there's only so many films. But they get combined in new and exciting ways each and every day. So uh -huh. sure. I don't tend to get lost in the specifics. I'm far more interested in the, uh, uh, the okay. principles, but it, it, so in how essence, people get more information on that. Uh, well, you, yeah, interested you, in training with you online. um, I've gone on Facebook and um, there's a Facebook page called habit university, the new training paradigm. 
Um, it's also havocuniversity.io is the, the page, or you can contact me at havocfighting at gmail.com. And what I normally do is set up a Zoom call. Okay. Uh, I let, no sell in the call. We talk about you know what the training is, what the expectations are, any questions. Um, and then if there's interest, then you know we we talk about the pricing points and things for that for it. But again, I have to know that a you're going to be a right fit for the system, and b the system and the way I teach it is going to be a right fit for you, because it's not for me to say everybody should do this. No, not everybody okay. should. It's not for everybody. But if it is something that you want, it's certainly one that's uh, not only effective, but it's been proven to be so, um, as many of my students will attest to. Yeah. I was going to ask you, do you have a um, selection process? Do you take anybody or um, do you actually weed people out? Because not I, everybody deserves this knowledge. We both know that. <laughs> that's true as well. Um, the flip side of the coin is the ones that don't deserve it generally lack the discipline to do it. Um, uh, if that makes sense, so uh, no, you're right. It absolutely, probably does. Not everybody is is worthy to hold it. <laughs> yeah, it's true though. You think about it, like if, you, if you're if you're the sort of person that you know wants a quick fix just to be able to do damage to people, you go and get a gun, go and get a bat with a nail in the end of it, or go and get a kitchen knife. You don't need to waste your time with martial arts, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. because it's as much a part of that personal development process as it is about learning how to fight. In fact, learning how to fight is the surface that draws you in. It's the tip of the iceberg. It's all the you know the, the rest of it under the surface in martial arts is what keeps you in there. But very few of the guys that want those quick fixes or are of poor character are going to necessarily want to be in there getting the crap beaten out of them while they're learning how to get good. Um, so you can right. usually – they self-weed. They will self-weed. As soon as they realize there's an expectation, not only a performance, um, but I expect that you're going to put the homeworks in on video – you're going to be in the classes regularly and you're going to show me progress in development. As soon as they realize they're going to have to work in it, many just self weed themselves out. Uh, the other ones will weed themselves out because they'll say, Oh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I'll be paying that much for it. And it's like, okay, go somewhere else then. I, I you know, what? Ferrari don't have sales and nor do I. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, hey, that reminds me, I went to a school called Tennessee, Tennessee state university. We were historically black college and we were, pretty powerful we send like eight nine guys to the nfl every year and um they had a day they didn't cut you cut your because <laughs> you quit <laughs> so it reminded yeah. me of what you were saying like if you can't hang you're just gonna quit yeah so i, I, day, I don't i don't need to do a lot of that weeding out now that being said there are a few people i have actually punted early doors as not being a good fit um i don't tell them that i don't say oh yeah you kind of suck please don't contact me anymore um, I just redirect them to something which I think would be because being a good fit doesn't necessarily mean they're a bad person. You know, if they want to get into competition and things like that as well. Yeah. My school competes locally. Um, and I have people that I train for competition, but it's not my focus. So it would be remiss of me to sell you a bill of goods on competing when that's not, I'm not saying there's no crossover, but it isn't what I do. Not uh -huh. at public university anyway. So I had a few guys wanted to compete in uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and Muay Thai. And it's not that I can't teach those arts. It's just that that ain't what I do. So I sent them to friends of mine locally. I said, no, go here and go here. Um, they're really good guys. I'll look after you and tell them that I sent you. Um, right. Because that, their purpose was, again, can I do it? Yes. Am I the best necessarily focused at it? No, I'm not. I'm not all things to all people, nor should I be. Um, sure, absolutely. So you don't, again, you don't so, go to Ferrari for an SUV. You are, in addition to being a martial artist, you were an officer of the goddamn law. <laughs> yes, I was. <laughs> 20 years. So, but which is, this is something that I really wanted to touch on. Um, you are a use of sports expert. Mm -hmm. And unless you've been sleeping under a rock the last two years, you know, your neighbors to the south has, have had a little problem with that. <laughs> yes, I do. Me, me being a minority, I'm particularly alarmed by it. And it's now becoming um, brought to us via cell phones and videos, the things that people. So now I know that martial arts is trained and people learn self-defense techniques. Where does the respect get lost when it's trained to officers as a pair, as opposed to training regular students? Because it seems like that might be the missing component, just somebody looking in, because I'm seeing force being 
applied unequally to different people. And there's an assessment made on who I'm going to, and I think there's something about the loss of respect. So is there a way to marry the, the self-respect and the discipline and the humility that we get from martial arts into police training? There is. Because um, I know down here, I, there may not be a problem there. I don't know if Canada may be more homogenous. I think there's some diversity. I know in places like Toronto there there is, but maybe in a more homogenous society isn't as much of a problem. But here, because there's so many different cultures, you know, like we said before, getting to our tribes, and then how this use of sport of force is applied is different depending on who they run into. I think you know what I'm saying. Without me, I know I'm, I'm I'm picking it up. Um, yes. <clears throat> most training that police undergo is woefully inadequate. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't do martial arts unless they do it on their own time. That is okay. Um, anything that they provide at the academy um, is usually not even a bare minimum. To be honest, it's it's pretty mm-hmm. low level. Police rely on several things. All policing, without exception is policing by consent. They rely on society allowing them to do control over the given rules and norms of a society. Uh-huh. So Calgary, for example, is a population of a million people. This is the city I'm in. It's actually a little more than I think it's 1.2. And the police department is about 2,000 cops. I don't, in fact, I don't even think it's that. I would say, let's say 2,000 for the sake of it. Now, if that million people suddenly turn around and said, we really don't want you guys to tell us what to do, Uh What are those 2,000 cops going to do? Nothing. They can't do a damn thing. So it's policing by consent at all times. And the policing tends to reflect the norms or the accepted norms of a given society. You know, no stealing, Uh no killing, no that sort of thing. So the training is not... You've only got a set amount of time to do it at the moment. Like, you know... An academy takes 18 months to get through. Well, you and I both know that 18 months in a martial arts, you can barely scratch your ass. But you're putting people right. out there. With no, and that 18 months of training isn't just physical stuff. That's your law and your gun and your vehicle operation and your ethics and your first aid and everything else that goes along with it. Oh, and we've got two weeks spare. Let's throw some subject control tactics in there. Well, you're really <laughs> not getting... You're not giving them enough to go at it properly. So there's several ways you can remedy that. One is provide ongoing, consistent training on a weekly or monthly basis for all your officers and make that mandatory. So training day to day. So I don't know, one morning shift, three days um, uh, out the month. That's your three days training. So even if that's what you're doing, you do subject control tactics one day, firearms the other day and I don't know, vehicle operations the day after or whatever it is you're going to do. At least you're mm-hmm. getting a consistent and ongoing training input to those officers. Guarantee right. you most guys that aren't training in martial arts, the last time they did defensive tactics was in the academy. And if you go be on the streets for five to ten years, you haven't done that in five to ten years. Right. So you're going in there in an adrenaline, adrenaline pumped situation in a potentially high risk and confrontational situation with no, no toolkit. Mm-hmm. So you're going to then start going visceral. Not to say that there aren't social and economic factors at play in the decision-making processes. They're obviously, it would be remiss, indeed, false of me to state that. But there are so many more layers to it as well. Um, a lot of the police brutality and perceived brutality or accusations of excessive force and things like that as well are constant across I'd almost say it's more of a class issue than it is anything else. Now, if it happens that a certain group of people tend to fall into the lower and, you know, uh, less privileged class group, then it also becomes a different social political issue, like a racial issue as well. But there you go to, you know, any backwater town. And the police will be just as hard on the trailer parkers as they will be on you know, any of the big cities and municipalities. They will go in the less desirable neighborhoods there as well. So it's as much a societal class poverty issue as it is a race issue. It's just unfortunately because of the way certain countries have their strata constructed, 
the racial issues mm-hmm. can't be avoided because it's folded into the class strata as well. So it's kind of a, okay. uh, a, a, a does that make sense? Yeah. Well, yeah, because basically what I got was that training is probably not the best. It sucks. System. The training sucks. From, so when, from, when you're from what I was gone, sir. I was saying it's probably not the best delivery system for what, what I was wanting to ha- have infused in our officers, which is, you know, um, in terms of you not having enough time to to go into the humility and the self-respect. So that has to come into the training or well, the humility and the self-respect in martial arts. The humility and self-respect in martial arts is actually largely overhyped. It was um, it was largely a Western thing. Um, because you're talking about a culture that permitted you to decapitate a peasant for touching the scabbard of your sword. Mm-hmm. So when you start to talk and, about and you, which civilization, the samurai. Uh-huh. Okay, yeah, okay. If a peasant touched a samurai sword, off with a head. Now, when you mm-hmm. talk about samurai, there's this, you know, the noble warrior class and the code of the samurai, the Bushido, which, by the way, came from the medieval knight's code. It wasn't a, 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 its own thing. Um, so a lot of this self-discipline that you get from the martial arts and things, it's like, well, you do, but it's not inherent. It's at the whims of the instructor. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, If you're looking at it as a codified system of fighting, any cultural... Um, or, you know, philosophical moral trappings that go along with that, they're going to be, you know, different depending on which region you do it from or which area you do it from, which country you do it from, which is why mm-hmm. there's a lot of the big formal bowing and culture in the Japanese systems. But you look at boxing, they don't do a lot of that. They touch clubs at the beginning of a fight, that's about it. But they're no less disciplined in what they do. Right. So when you talk about things like respect, that you gain from martial arts and you can gain it, but you can get respect from Tillywink singing in the choir or doing any other number of things as well. Mm-hmm. The problem isn't a physical problem. It's not as well. It is actually because you're not giving them skills to deal with anything. So you've got someone that's already underskilled, and then you flood their body with adrenaline and stress. What little mm-hmm. skill they have deteriorates still further. Archilochus himself said in 650 BC, you will never rise to the occasion. You will fall to the level of your training. And if your training is poor, you'll fall to be poor. Then it becomes caveman one on one. I don't know how else to deal with this. I'm just going to like start thumping, the, you know, pumping the fist down and, and smacking this guy. So that's on a purely physical right. level. When you start to look at the other stuff as well, and I'm not going to pick on the United States when I say this because you do find this elsewhere, but I'll use some highlight, high profile examples. Really, they don't really know the law either. Certainly not that's to any. That's very disturbing. Them. No, it is. Yeah, that's well, very disturbing. They're generally documented many times. Police are generalists, so what they're designed to do is put things before the courts. If they can't deal with it there and then, their job is to put it before the court. They don't determine guilt. When you arrest someone, you're not saying they're guilty. What you are saying is, at this stage in the proceedings, I have reason to believe there's sufficient evidence to suggest you have involvement in an offense that may have occurred. Therefore, I'm going to take you away from the situation to examine that further. That's what an arrest stands for. But there's an assumption that arrest equally translates as guilt. And that's a big mistake, not only from members of the public, but from the police themselves. And how many times have you seen someone? And the police will do things like, you know, you're under arrest. What for? Put your hands behind your back. Yeah, but what are you arresting me for? Put your hands behind your back. And then you start struggling. It's like, right, you're under arrest for resisting arrest. It's like, if you're going to arrest them Mm -hmm. for resisting arrest, you have to arrest them for something in the first place. You need a substantive offense before you can put the secondary offense of resisting arrest. But again, they tend to go to what I call the contempt of cop defenses. You're not doing as I told, therefore you're not respecting my authority. To use the South Park. Um, To the level of your training, you return to the level of your training. It goes right back to that as well. If the officer cannot articulate and explain fully why they're stopping you, why they're arresting you, for what purposes they're engaged with you, then they shouldn't be doing it. Right. If you can't tell them why you're stopping them, don't stop them. So it's not just the physical training. It's the legal side of things too as well. And this is the other thing that people police know totally bad at doing this. If you stop someone and you realize you've made a mistake, put your hands up, say you made a mistake, and let walk on with that day. If that person, while you're dealing with them for a traffic violation, you know, cast aspersions on your family and your mother and your girlfriend and your wife, let them do it. Let them do it. Do your job. Be professional. 
you know um we have a duty and the idea of with my guys um we we have a thing called the guardian mindset so i teach my guys the guardian mindset i don't like this idea of warrior mindset i think it's largely overhyped and i'm not saying warriors aren't necessary but everybody that starts to throw out like you know oh i follow the warriors way or your man you're such a warrior and all that "Eh, okay it's kind of passe at the moment to the point where people are being called warriors for balancing their checkbook on time. Oh, yeah, what a warrior way to do it. <laughs> it's, true, though. I mean, it's become a meaningless term. But even if we allow it to mean what it is, warrior one engaged in war, the problem with that is policing, although it's inherently violent at times, most of the time isn't about war. So I say to my guys, don't be a warrior. Be a guardian because a guardian looks out for people. A guardian ensures everybody's safe, whether that's themselves, their family, the community as a whole, it ensures they're safe. Should it be required to step Mm -hmm. up to fight, they're capable and want to do that. But outside of that, they do small things to help people be safe. And once you stop looking at things as a war zone and fighting, and instead you shift your focus to protecting, then Mm -hmm. everything changes in the way you approach situations. Yeah, that's actually the first word you see on most cars, protect and serve. Yeah, <laughs> you know, protect and serve, but they yeah. don't, though, because it's warrior cops. Warrior cop fell into right. um, the circulation a few years ago was the thing. you got to survive the fight, in the fight, stay in it to win it. It's like, yeah, I'm not saying you don't, but if you're seeing ninjas behind every bus stop, then guess what? Everyone that you see is you seen as a potential threat. Are they a potential threat? Well, sure, but they're also a potential nice person going about their business. In the world, overwhelmingly people are nice otherwise we'd have anarchy and chaos so you're already dealing with a small percentage of people that aren't nice but even the people that aren't nice it doesn't mean they're less deserving of being treated with respect a society should be judged by how it treats the lowest not by how it treats the best wow you just said something there come on (laughs) yeah you just said something there so why are you a martial arts instructor Um, it's my passion but you're doing this it's my passion. Uh, this Of all the things I've done, I mean, I've done lots of things in my life. This is where I find the most joy, um, seeing someone develop themselves personally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually in what they're doing and growing. I help people learn to defend themselves. I help the young kid gain confidence. I help the person lose weight. I help the person that, you know, doesn't have a social group or anything to hang out with. And so, you know, there's a running joke that literally no one in the club is normal. Because we, atta- we we describe ourselves jokingly as the Waves and Strays Club. Everybody brings their <laughs> own their own unique quirk and you know special thing. You know whether that's a um, sure. you know a, a, a psychological thing or whether you know it's an orientation or a political system or whatever. No one's normal, but we all come together under one roof several hours a week to train, to enjoy each other's company, and to help each other grow. It's the steel that sharpens sharpens the steel. We grow as a pack. And um, and and it's a special thing. I'm blessed to be able to share what I've learned and what has saved my life and what has helped me become the person I am with other people. And it's just a genuine joy to do that. For them, it's a couple of nights a week. For me, it's 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 my life. And so, because I'm so passionate about it, I'm fortunate that I'm able to actually make this my uh, my vocation. Yeah. How many hours a week do you think you spend doing this? Uh, well, I teach three running, hours. Running, running your running your school. Running the so school three hours, hours three hours Monday to Friday. Three, uh, no, 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 three hours every night, Monday to Friday. So that's fifteen hours straight away. That's not including the two hours I do in the morning with regards to the admin stuff. So five hours a day on that. That's also not including the private lessons. Then I do on the weekend. We see eight to one for that. So that's another five hours on a weekend. Then I've got the virtual classes and lessons that I teach as well online, plus the research, plus the video editing, 40 plus hours without even breaking a sweat. That's, wow. it's full time. This is full time. It's, pr- it's probably way more than that. You just enjoy it so much you don't really count. Well, that's your, yeah. So when I'm doing my own stuff, is that count as part of my work or is that just what I'm doing for myself as well? You know? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, well, it's the marketing, you know, it's, it's all the other side stuff that goes with it. You know, running the school, making sure other people are doing what they're supposed to do, getting supplies. I mean, there's a lot of other things that go into running a school, which is why I never really wanted to. 
I wanted to do this so I could teach people in my basement because I didn't want all the headaches of running. A I I started off I one of a specialized group of people. I started off teaching as a guest instructor at other people's schools while I was in the police. And then I actually taught out my garage for the longest time, but I outgrew it. You know, people wanted to come and train with me and it was a hardcore group. And we, man, we used to go crazy stuff. Um, but then, you know, I fast outgrew it. Um, my business partner, Sarah Jade Folk, um, nicknamed Morgan, she was running her own club and she was literally shooing everybody out, shutting the doors, driving up to come and fight in my garage. So when we outgrew, we kind of, we, <laughs> But it was ridiculous. So in the end, I was like, I outgrew the, the garage, and I said, I'm going to have to find some premises, you know. Um, and she said, Well, I'm renting this space for what I do. Why don't, if you're okay with traveling a little bit extra, why don't we just, you know, merge merge my school with your school? And that was where a steam habit came from. Now the beauty awesome. with that was we've now got classes for kids, classes for adults, uh, mm-hmm. classes for police, classes. We've done military, we've done, you know, community groups. You, you name it, we do it, and. Uh, we're very proud of our dojo. We haven't compromised on our standards. That doesn't mean everybody's in a fight to the death. It just, you know, means we expect, you know, you to get, if you give us what we've got, we'll take care of the rest. If you want to come sure. in and have us it, then there's nothing we can do for you. You know? Absolutely. On a lighter note, give me your three favorite martial arts movies. Oh, Way of the Dragon. Okay. Um, Bruce that's Lee, Bruce Lee. Um, the reason I like Way of the Dragon so much is partly because it's the Bruce Lee Chuck Norris fight scene. Um, yeah. it was also, well, I mean, how can you, you don't need to say any more than that. It was the first Bruce Lee film I actually ever saw for most people as Enter the Dragon, but for me, it was Way of the Dragon. Um, and the other reason I like that film so much is that was Bruce Lee's baby. He wrote and directed it. So that's okay. the essence of Bruce Lee in that film. So I love Way of the Dragon. Um, the Crow is one of my favorites as well. Technically not a martial arts movie, I suppose. It's more of an action movie. Um, but mm-hmm. I just adore that film. I think it's so... Was that with Brandon so... Lee? Yeah, 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 yeah. When he's the rock director, Raven that comes back from the dead and things like that as well. If you make yeah, that an action him. film, if you make that an action mm-hmm. film, a martial arts film, I'll happily put it to one side. Um, okay. Then you look at, um, despite the fact the subject that inspired it is an absolute clown, the film itself, Bloodsport, is amazing. Um, I've, oh, yeah. I love Bloodsport. I have no time for Frank Dukes whatsoever. The man's a fraud and a flake, but he gave us indirectly a great film in Bloodsport with Van Damme. So I can't, you know, that, that I, I can't hate on Bloodsport just because of the source material was so bad on that. So let's go Way of Dragon and Bloodsport. And for my final one, I'll probably go for one like um, uh, Shogun Assassin, if you've ever seen that I one. Now, seen that. that was a oh, Thomas. I'm writing these Thomas, down. Thomas Saburo Wakayama um, was the main guy in that. It's a Japanese one, but it's the Baby Cart series, so Lone Wolf and Cub, where you got the uh, okay. the samurai pushing his son in a wooden cart, and he gets hired, and he's like, it's all like. You know, Sam Peckinpah and you know limbs flying off and blood shooting out like it's in hose pipes and things like that as well. But it was um, a series in Japan that was put together and released as a film called Shogun Assassin. If you get the chance to see it, well, well worth it. It's just awesome samurai swords and interaction and all sorts of wonderful stuff going in there. Yeah, I'll check that out, man. Um, hey, I wanted to. I know you got your kids and everything. This is a Saturday, and y'all still have some daylight left, actually. <laughs> um, it's pretty cold here, man. It was like 80 most of the week, and then last night it rained and got up and it was 32 degrees. So I was like, "Damn, I'm in Calgary." <laughs> What's the temperature there today? Uh, today it's um one degree, which is warm oh, for us. Jesus. Oh, oh dude, it was it was minus 15 <laughs> earlier in the week, and it was minus five a couple of days ago. So like it's one degree. So it's actually quite balmy. I'm walking around in a t-shirt. Oh my god. You get so, used to it very quickly. Let me, let me give you a chance now to give out all your uh, your social media stuff so people want to get in touch with you. Um, they'll be able to do that. Absolutely. So the easiest way to get a hold of me just in general is via email, which is havocfighting mm-hmm. at gmail.com. Um, my okay. website is esteemandhavoc.com um and uh have at university.io for my online training program if you follow instagram i'm on there as have account 
And if you go on Facebook, um, I'm obviously I'm there as Jay Cooper, but Esteem and Havoc are also on Facebook as well. And so is Havoc, Havoc University, the new training paradigm, which is my, uh, uh, my online training page. Okay. Well, look, I want to make sure that we leave here um, as friends and let's stay connected. Um, if you have anything of interest you think I might be interested in, please shoot it by me. I don't mind. I will do um, I'm hoping to build relationships with this podcast and hopefully train with a few guys. I'm doing a South Carolina trip that I have committed to to train with oh. some guys. So I'm nice. like, I can get three schools in South Carolina and let's go hit all of them. So, but that'll be probably later this summer. I have some um, therapy I'm going through right now, but uh-huh. I really appreciate your time. You've been no a very problem. interesting guest. You're doing a lot Thank of you. other things and um, I much success to you and say hello to Sifu Singh for me. I will do. I'll send my love on him. Very familiar with his with very familiar with his work. I think I mentioned that I trained with um, Sifu Kyle and Augusta yes. once. Yes, you did. Um, yes, you did. So, and they treat family, and I really respect that. And um, I also used to train with Sifu Lamar. Sifu Singh now is connected with. So, yeah, they've started doing some um, some seminars and things together, which is nice to see the JKD community bonding that way. Oh, um, I love that! Isn't that cool? That is so it really cool. is. And I'm gonna go to their next one. I think they're having one in the fall. I should be ready by then. Uh-huh. But uh, let's stay connected, Jake. Take care of your beautiful family. You uh, too. Train hard, man. It's always a good day to train. Keep swinging, keep blasting, and uh, if anyone tries to get you down, pull guard and tap them out. Yes, sir. All right, brother. <laughs> take care. Have a great day. You too, man. Bye, bye. Marshally Speaking. You have been tuned to the Marshally Speaking podcast with Jeff Green, where he explores martial arts, the fight sport, and the professionals who make it great. Tune in every Monday and Thursday on Anchor Podcast for your next lesson. Marshally Speaking.